Defining who we are is really hard. Sometimes it's categorized as race, sometimes it's ethnicity, but do we really know the difference, the real explanation? Meanwhile, social media has its own idea of who we should be. To help sort this all out, let's ask Dr. Shane Campbell Staten. Really, what we're we're using an arbitrary an arbitrary biological cue to try to say something much more penetrating about the differences between peoples. Testing, testing. Testing. One, two, three. Testing. Mic check. Hey, what are you guys doing? Cool shit. speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Race is, is color to me. And we think of ethnicity as beliefs or in, in behaviors that are learned. I think we are born into our race, but our ethnicity is the culture that we're raised within. People don't get it. As a white person, it is a little bit more confusing because I don't identify with um, too much other than, you know, what I've been told. Race has more to do with physical traits within a given group of people based on where they are from geographically. So I wished I had a good indicator and a good way to describe what I think is the difference. Hopefully one day we'll become a huge part of a collective consciousness and rise above these differences. Welcome back to Primitively Speaking. I'm Elise. I'm Allie. And we're with Shane, who is going to go on a journey with us because we want to learn more about race, ethnicity, identity, culture, culture, and we want to deep dive and deconstruct topics. So welcome, Shane. Thank you. It's great to be here. (laughs) Thank you. It's great to have you. Tell us a little bit bit about your background. Yeah, so I am... Uh, I guess the simplest way to say it is I'm an evolutionary biologist. Uh, uh, So I spend most of my time trying to understand the processes of, you know, adaptation and gene flow and, you know, population expansion Mm -hmm. and, you know, population crash, how all these things work together to influence what we see now, right, in terms of the form and function of animals across the planet. Uh, And recently, you know, most of my research has actually focused on contemporary evolution. So trying to understand how we as a species are influencing the evolution and biology of non-human species around the planet. Well, so are we animals? Humans are part of those animals, right? Oh, yeah, we are most certainly animals. We are nested right smack dab in the middle of mammals. Uh, I'm sorry. I thought I was created by God. I was a God-given treat for the world. No, I'm just oh, kidding. Well, I mean, maybe you are. You, that is a hypothesis that you can... I, I was a, a child of God, Shane. It's no, I'm un, just kidding. It's an untestable hypothesis, but... I have a feeling. No, I'm, I'm, I'm messing. So um, I want to know a little bit about when you say modern evolution. Mm. Can you give us a specific example of something? And I think this might be a new topic mm-hmm. for us and listeners. Yeah. So when you're thinking about modern evolution, so if I could take a step back and and when we're thinking about evolution in the classic sense, right? So yeah. and if, we're, if we're thinking about Chuck D, Charles Darwin, the originator of yeah. the idea. Uh, Chuck D, you know, I love that. Yeah. That's, that's my dude right there. He's <laughs> the OG. 
Um, when we're thinking about uh, Charles Darwin, you know, he proposed this theory of evolution by natural selection. And one of the things, you know, I mean, he was a man that was ahead of his time in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, but he also got a few things wrong, right? Because he was so far ahead of his time, right? He proposed this without any understanding of genetics. Like, you know, no one understood what genetics was yet. Uh, that didn't come along until decades later. Um, but one of the things that he got wrong was was his understanding of the pace of evolution. One of the things that you know that he thought is that you know evolution is such a gradual process that you'd never actually be able to observe it, just what it leaves behind, mm -hmm. right? The things in the fossil record or the form and function that we see now, what he called uh, the endless forms most beautiful, like all the bi biodiversity that we see mm -hmm. around us. And one of the things that we know now is that not only does evolution by natural selection happen, but we can actually observe it as it plays out in real time and measure the effects of natural selection um, on, on very short periods of time. So, I mean, there's a lot of different examples now, uh, and the examples are only growing literally day by day. Um, you know, but we know, for instance, um, cities, right? The, uh, the increase of urbanization, it changes a lot of different things about mm -hmm. the environment, um, you know, structure. So if you consider, for instance, the, uh, the cities across Puerto Rico, uh, oh. a colleague of mine uh, has been spending a lot of her time. We're actually collaborating on this project now, um, trying to understand how – I spend most of my time studying lizards, by the way. Very like exciting. No way. Little scalies. Love it. Um, you Blue know, belly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, we've been uh, trying to understand how lizards that live in cities and really high densities are adapting to those cities. Uh, and my colleague, Kristen Winchell, has found that um, – Lizards that live in cities, they have evolved like longer limbs that better help them uh, to cling to the sides of buildings as opposed to trees. Uh, they have uh, larger toe pads that mm -hmm. allow them to like stick to, to those surfaces because in cities they have to do that on concrete and metal as opposed to bark. Right. Um, and I spent last summer, for instance, in, in Mozambique studying the uh, evolution of, uh, of tusk loss in elephants in mm -hmm. response to um, – to hunting for the uh, for the ivory trade. Oh, that's still a thing. Yeah. No, it does. It's so it is not happening uh, as much anymore in in some places. Some places it's still happening a lot. Um, but there have been a lot of efforts to um, to curb the effects of uh, of poaching and hunting for yeah. uh, for the ivory trade. But these are really long lived species. All right. So mm -hmm. uh, between the late 70s and early 90s, there was a civil war in Mozambique. And uh, during that time, there was large scale hunting for the ivory trade. Uh -huh. And the population you know, went from somewhere around 3000 to about 300 in about that 15 year or so period. Mm -hmm. um, and amongst elephant, uh, elephants, they have tusks, right? African elephants, for the most part, have tusks. There are a very few number of individuals uh, under normal circumstances that are born without tusks naturally. Uh, and they, yeah, they're typically like between like three and six percent of the population, and this only occurs Aww. in females. But after the war, uh, in Gorongosa National Park, where I've been working, uh, half of the females uh, do not have their tusks. Uh, so we're trying mm. to understand. You know how this process has played out. What genetically speaking uh, has stopped them from from growing their tusks, and what the implications are for elephants as ecosystem engineers, because they serve a lot of different roles in those yeah. environments for other species. 
Plus, socially, they probably feel weird. They don't have their tusks. Yeah, they they right? always do have I this mean, this really kind of adorable smile on their face. It looks like, um, you know, because they don't have the, the tusks. Uh, Listen, if I'm a female elephant out in the wild, I need a tusk. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Against all those male elephants, I need my tusks. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have a question though. How is that related to humans? Like, what do we see? Do we see that in humans in recent? Their parallels. Here's contemporary evolution, you mean? Yeah. 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 Um, so we do uh, in some some very interesting ways. Right? So when we're thinking about uh, evolution, it's different than evolution by natural selection specifically, right? So evolution does not have to occur by natural selection. Uh, one of the ways that evolution can occur is by the release of natural selection, right? So now all of a sudden things that wouldn't, you know, historically have not been around or may have been weeded out for one reason or another, mm -hmm. now all of a sudden they can accumulate and they can uh, increase the variation that is expressed in a population. And we see that uh, in ourselves a lot. For instance, you know, when we think about aging, right, we live much longer now than we ever lived before. Right. And, you know, because of that, we also see a lot of late life diseases that yep. are rising in frequency. And this happens because of the way that natural selection has to act. Right. So because we're living so much longer, right, by the time these diseases express themselves, we've already reproduced. We've already had children, maybe grandchildren. So natural selection as a process, it, it can't weed out any of those genes causing you know, any of the, these diseases because you know, we're just living longer and we've already reproduced. Those genes have already been passed on They're to the next there. generation before we even realize yeah. anything has happened. The other interesting example is um, when it comes to C-sections as oh. a technology. All right, so in Always a popular scares the crap out of me yeah, thinking about that. Yeah, it's uh, I, it's one of my favorite examples. I always feel weird talking about this example as a guy, though. Quite quite honestly, well, we have we don't haven't <laughs> been through it. So yeah. <laughs> um, so in uh, so when we're considering like childbirth generally as a process, uh, one of the things that we know when it comes to babies is that being a big baby is a good thing. Uh, okay. You know, they cheers to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they um, you know, they have, you know, higher rates of survival. Um, they're generally healthier, so on and so forth. Um, and so being big is a good thing, except when you're too big to pass through your mother's birth canal. Right. Then all of a sudden it becomes a very bad thing, <laughs> an extremely bad thing. Scary. Uh, and this means something very interesting for selection, right? Because it means that selection is choosing Right, it's, it's selecting for um, larger babies to a point, mm. right? and there's always um, and there are always uh, individuals in a population that genetically will have children that are likely to be too large to pass through their birth canal. And they're like women with with very narrow hips, mm -hmm. and this is what we call fetal pelvic disproportion, right? The the mismatch between pelvic dimensions and fetal dimensions. Mm -hmm. But because every woman is mating with a dude, right? Dudes are constantly recycling those big baby genes. I right? was going to say, because I mean, two to tango here. Yeah, exactly. I got a little dude, so I'm going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to sneeze and have that baby. No, I'm just kidding. Andrew, are you listening? No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that's fascinating. Yeah, so um, yeah, so and this is what we call cliff edge selection, right? So you're selecting for bigger and bigger babies, bigger babies until you hit that critical point where the baby can't pass through the birth canal, and right. then 
And then all of a sudden, fitness drops all the way to zero, right? And that's the cliff's edge. But now that we have C-sections as a technology, mm-hmm. that edge has been released. Oh, my goodness. Right? So now, all of a sudden, right, there are more and more women now in our population that require to, that, are, that need to give birth by C-section. But that's because we have mm-hmm. C-sections as a technology. That's crazy that to is think about. Fascinating. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah, that's weird. My goodness. That's a crazy. So then one. like if we never developed that what, I don't even know I don't even know how to explain what would have happened. We would have just potentially had child death and childbirth. Yes. Exactly. And it just right. would have been cut off. And and that's the thing is that, you know, human life is paramount to us. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. At least it should be in, in our most, society. Yes. Right. And you know, and in most cases, right? I mean, that could send yeah. us down all kinds of roads. Right, right, right. But, right. you know, but we, you know, as our technology has developed, you know, as our, um, you know, social mores have developed, you know, the protection of human life has been, you know, paramount. And it's led to, you know, the way that we have shaped the entire planet that we live on, right? I mean, yeah. think about how many apex predators has gone extinct because they may potentially, you know, kill one person mm-hmm. sometimes, mm-hmm. right? So therefore, they all have to go forever. And, you know, so this idea that, you know, human life is paramount, you know, it's caused all sorts of evolutionary uh, consequences, both for us and for the rest of the tree of life. Plus, we're spending on that research, which is Mm. a whole nother angle. Yeah. Are we going to have a lot more bigger humans then, right? Now there's just bigger babies out in the world making other bigger babies. Yeah, there are. We're just going to keep getting larger. We're going to turn into dinosaurs. It'll be exciting. <laughs> so that was the plan. It's <laughs> just cycling back. Okay. So, so you know, the, the thing, so evolution isn't a forward-looking process, right? So it doesn't, like, plan on anything. It doesn't move us, you know, in a particular mm-hmm. direction, right? right? It simply responds to the things that are happening now, right? right? But, you know, I do inherently, just as a person, like the idea of potentially being, like, a brontosaurus at some point. <laughs> I mean, hey. Talk about power. I'm you know? a raptor, I gotta oh. be honest. So, mm. no, nah, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> if, if that is your power animal, if that's your spirit animal, Thank then you. Yeah, you do your thing. <laughs> Clever girl. Yeah, yeah I'm picturing Jurassic Park that reference scene there. when they're yeah. chased with all the tables, yeah. the silver tables. That's my favorite. All <sighs> right, let's shift modes yes. and get into some other topics that, yeah. uh, that we want to talk to about. So, I think we want to start off with just a jumping point of how do we define race and how is that different from ethnicity? Mm. And, and you can think from an evolutionary perspective. For whatever sure. lens yeah. you want to speak from. And like, is race a so- social construct? How? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a big topic. And I think it's 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 a complicated topic for me, right? Coming at it as both a biologist and a black man, right? For sure. Right. For sure. Yeah, there's there's a lot of things that sort of crisscross uh, for me. Uh, so, but your original, so what is what is the difference uh, between race and uh, and ethnicity? So, race, generally speaking, more or less has to do with skin color, right? And you know, whether you're, you know, you know, darker, whether you're lighter, you know, what you know, hue your skin has, right? These are the things that typically like, you know, you walk into a party and you, I don't know who would do this, but you walk into a party you're like, oh, that's an Asian person. That's right. a black person. That's a white person. I don't, it's it's yeah, messed up. If you, if you walk into a party and do that, like you got a whole different set of issues. <laughs> but theoretically speaking, if that's how you go about doing it, right, then really what you're, what you're doing, first of all, you're looking at, uh, at skin color, 
right? And you're sort of you know putting some qualitative assessments on skin color, uh, as well as you know hair morphology, maybe eye morphology, nose morphology, right? Sort of yeah. all these these external features, and you know, and now in contemporary society, right? And in you know much more so in history, you would I, I think uh, you know we put other other meanings to these phenotypic differences that we see. And I mean, that generally speaking is race. Now, what ethnicity is, right, is something that's much more specific, right? That has to do with, um, with specific aspects of one's culture, of one's uh, religion, of one's demographic history, right? So, you know, where, um, where their lineage has been over generations, mm-hmm. um, whether, they, whether that lineage has gone through a population expansion or reduction, what environment they lived in, uh, and then how that plays out right, in terms of modern day you know, socioeconomic mm-hmm. status and interactions. Right? All those things combine to, for, in order to, uh, to make ethnicity right, as, as a general concept. Right. Wow. There's so many layers in there. There's a lot. We interviewed a psychologist that was telling us about some new research that's been done on trauma being passed down mm. genetically. Have you read yeah. any of this? So, so not not genetically, uh, but epigenetically. Okay, can you explain yeah. what is that? Yeah. So, um, so when we think about so genetics is basically it's our blueprint, right? right. So you know the actual genetic code you know that we have in the nucleus of each of our cells very literal exactly right mm. it's um you know you can think of it very literally as the blueprint right yeah. the you know the physical thing that says build build me an organism this is what that organism is going to look like but um there are there's a lot of other ways right there's a lot of other things that influence what that organism ends up looking like, behaving like, so yeah. on and so forth. And that has to do with the interaction of that blueprint with the environment in which that blueprint is used mm-hmm. to build an organism. Right? And so when we're thinking about epigenetics, right? epigenetics is a way of, uh, it's, it's a simply a mechanism of tinkering with gene expression of individual genes, right? You can uh, silence genes, right? Turn down their, uh, turn down their expression. You can even ramp up the expression of certain genes. Wait, well, you can do that at what point in the process? Like before someone's born, or like to, just to study? So you can. So it it is something that happens, right? Is it, this is one of our natural biological mechanisms? Okay. Right, and depending on on what you're talking about, right? So if you're you know thinking about things that that only developed early in life, mm-hmm. right? If you if there is epigenetic modification right that happens early in life where right? you can tinker with gene expression to you know affect those things early in life but right. even in adulthood right like adult stresses things like that yeah you know those things can also cause changes in uh, in DNA methylation in um, you know histone structure right? all these different things that that can alter gene expression and one of the things that we've also realized is that in invertebrates, uh, certainly in mammals, that in some cases, those those methylation tags, right, those little things that 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 link onto the DNA and say turn turn up or turn down, got it. They can actually be passed on to the next generation. Wow. Uh, so there's nothing nothing has happened to your genetic code, your sequence, mm-hmm. right? But you've added this fader switch, right, that turns up or turns down. Right, what is being produced by those genes? Like an emphasis, kind of, on something, or just 
so I, something I don't, stronger? Yeah. So it's you know basically um, you know if you can think of it like a like a faucet, you know, oh, for instance, right? So uh-huh. it's like basically you're like make more copies of this thing, got it, or make less copies of this thing. Wow. Right? And it's what those copies then go on to do, like, you know, what proteins they go on to make, how those proteins interact with the rest of our complex physiology. Yeah. That, you know, but we know that it can affect um, things like behavior. Uh, it can affect uh, things like morphology, right? The way an organism is, is uh, shaped, their size, et cetera, et cetera. Can it also impact like diseases that they're predisposed to? Like, so, predetermined to so disease state can have an effect on uh, on the the global processes of of methylation. The thing is, we're still in our infancy in trying to understand what 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 it does, right? In terms of like what are the the downstream consequences? Like, you know, when can it happen? When can't it happen? Why? And yeah, because I'm like, what's making one of those? turn on that faucet more. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. if you can't figure that out, then you can't, like, it is what it is. Exactly. And that's it's like, oh, can't fix it. Yeah. But we do have the mechanism, right? And yeah. we can even, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, we've gone, at this point, we can now even use it for very specific things, right? So we can um, use it in combination with like CRISPR technology, for instance, right? To actually introduce, right, a methylation tag in a very specific wow. place in a genome, right, and, and test for its effects. Can you explain Dang. CRISPR technology? I recently did some research after listening to the Joe Rogan podcast mm. about what man. the research has been being done in China. Yeah. Oh, yeah, China. Okay. <laughs> so, Sorry, we're just, no, woo, no, we're, we're going we for it. We are going on a scientific journey We right sure now. are. Cheers <laughs> to that. Totally okay with yeah. it. In the beginning. No. Um, <laughs> oh, what a great voice. Yeah, I, I've been practicing my radio voice. Amazing. I can't wait to hear your podcast. P.S. Guys, we're going to learn about Shane's podcast yes. later. Yes, smooth but... jazz radio. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, CRISPR. Yeah. yeah. So CRISPR is... Um, so the system itself um, is actually a um, it's a, a bacterial immune system, right? So it's a way that um, that bacteria and archaea go about um, defending themselves against viruses, like right? MRSA, like staph kind so, of thing. Uh, or? So any sort of virus. So the thing about oh man, there's so much background we need to do. Okay, I know. So feel free to share five hours. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So the, you know. Basically, this mm-hmm. system, right, as a biological process, yeah. evolved because of this interaction between viruses and bacteria, right? Viruses are essentially just like tiny little capsules of DNA with a syringe attached, and they can't themselves reproduce uh, in the way that you know, most organisms can. So they have to inject their genetic material, right, into another organism and then let that other organism's mechanisms then produce more of itself, mm. right? And it typically uh, does that by way, well, in ancient history, right, through through bacteria, because that was pretty much the only other thing right. that was around for a really long time. Uh, and in response, right, the bacteria are like, I don't like that. Please don't do that to me. So I'm going to develop a defensive system, right, which is this, this CRISPR system. Uh, wow. And basically what it does is, you know, when that happens, you know, essentially – um, little bits of that the viral DNA get incorporated uh, into a very specific region of the bacterial genome, right? That and that then acts as an alarm system, right? That allows the uh, bacteria to mount a very specific response mm-hmm. to then go in and cut the that invading DNA, right? Oh, and wow. that's that's the immune system. But what we've done is we've taken that that basic immune system and we've co-opted it for our own purposes. So now instead of 
it being like a little bit of, of viral DNA, we can actually put in a tag that says we want this uh, this molecule, right? This this CRISPR Cas9 molecule, which essentially acts as scissors. Yeah. Uh, we want it to attach to this very specific place in the genome, and so you know you you take what bit of genome that you you want that CRISPR uh, Cas9 system to attach to, to right, 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 and you insert the complement, right? You, the the sort of matching sequence. You you put it in in the proper place within that system, and then uh, and then the, those scissors essentially find that one specific place in the genome, and they make the cut. Whoa! They're producing superhumans, Allie. Literally, that's like so. It's an artificial, stronger immune system. Yes. No. It's, kind of. Uh, so it's it. So we've taken that immune system and. We've essentially and we've turned it into a focused editing system. Wow! Right, so you can go in and you can snip stuff out of the genome. You can insert stuff into the genome, but you can do it. the The key here and the utility for CRISPR Cas nine, what makes it so powerful, is that you can do it very specifically. Right, you can say wow. we want you to go to this one particular place on this one particular chromosome and make this one particular change, and that's very very powerful. So before I shift us into I can kind of see how this is going to work with race and stuff. But what does that mean for autoimmune diseases? So if so, like AIDS, yeah, epidemic example. Yeah. So, um, you know, for any sort of genetic. So, for instance, so um, for diseases that are uh, that are virally based. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, it gives us a very concrete mechanism, right, a very concrete uh, weapon in order to fight exactly. those those viruses. And it and it's something that we can manipulate and that we can tinker with to make better and more efficient mm-hmm. for the specific purposes that we have in mind. Right. Right. But also any other sort of genetically based diseases, right? Things that are affected in our adult life that aren't sort of like fixed early, early, early in development. These are also things that that can be altered, right? And if we can if we can get it into every cell in our bodies, then you know we can potentially cure within a person's lifetime some genetically based diseases that you know that otherwise would would plague them for the rest of so their we're lives. We're going to live forever. <laughs> we need to figure out a plan on a computer <laughs> chip Let's in be. this place together cuz no one's going to die anymore. But that makes me think of It's great but it's so scary. Yeah. Makes you me know? think of who has access. It has access. a lot of implications. Yeah. Yes. Who has access to that? Exactly. Right? It's going to be expensive. Probably. I, I resources. Mean, well, look already at, at how resources are dispersed and how who has access to health care and who has access to have live long quality lives. Yeah. And and this is oh the complex gosh. interaction of, of biology and society, right? I mean, because you know, those those Whoa. axes that you're talking about, right, they're they're not <clears> just random, right? They're distributed across, you know, very specific axes, right, that have very specific historical contexts in which they exist. Due to shared experiences, behaviors and beliefs cross all the races. So the concept of race really should be inconsequential. Hey, so I've got some French and German and Scottish and Irish and maybe some other things that I'm not even aware of. Ethnicity is more closely tied to culture. So um, more of a chosen aspect of our personality than it is one that's been transmitted down to us from like physical characteristics transmitted down from ancestors and ethnicity is more closely tied to culture so 
um, more of a chosen aspect of our personality than it is one that's been transmitted down to us from like physical characteristics. Take it back to when we were talking about um, those two. I forget if you said so morpha something or the two like the things that were producing more. Um, oh my gosh! In certain people, like the faucet thing, when you were oh, like yeah, so turning I, on something he, to produce more and be stronger in mm-hmm. the genetic process. Yeah, so you're right? talking about the the epigenetic modifications. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Do you think there is something biologically in any person, and I don't want to say race, but like essentially a certain race or a certain culture or ethnicity that has more of something? Is there any research on that? More of like a tendency or so so this is so so this is where we get to exactly what race is yes to- and that's exactly why i'm yeah. bringing it up because i can you can be like ali you are crazy that is so wrong yeah so the thing is so race <clears throat> you know this idea of race as a biological versus a social construct right. right the answer to this question um speaking as a biologist is is both okay right? The thing it, but what really matters is utility. Mm. Right? In what sense? Okay, so if we're talking about trying to understand differences, right, between individuals, between populations, right. um, you know, this is, you know, what differences are we really interested in, mm-hmm. right? So as I said before, race more or less has to do with with skin color. You know, or you know, like maybe hair color or hair, like how curly or straight your hair is, so Scratch on and so on forth. The right. And these traits, right, that we use to identify somebody as a specific race have a very simple genetic basis, right? Skin color mm-hmm. uh, is controlled by like maybe two genes, right? One is called MC1R, the other That's one it. is called Agouti. Right? And these like two genes, right, affect how much, you know, melanin is deposited right. in someone's dermis. Right. That is how mm-hmm. we get skin color. Pigment. Yeah, precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we see that, you know, as we move into to different geographic areas, right? That, right. Like the, the, those patterns of pigmentation can can change. Equator based. Exactly. It, and it is, right? It's, yeah. it's based on like long periods of time and, and progressing through time near the equator and, yes. and needing that as protection. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So it's so melanin pr- protects against UV. Right. Right. right? It uh, protects against UV radiation, which is much stronger um, at the equator than it is towards the poles. Right. And the and then but the flip side is, you know, as you move you know into higher latitudes, it gets much harder to get like vitamin D right. from, from the sun. Right. Because right. you get these super seasonal cycles. Mm-hmm. Therefore, like being much more sensitive to getting any sort of radiation mm-hmm. right, is better. Right. So therefore, you know, selection acts to. You know, to reduce the amount of pigmentation that's being deposited in the right. skin of peoples in those polar regions. An adaptation situation. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But they're also <clears throat> shaped by patterns of of migration and things like For that. For sure. Now, okay. So you want to call that race? Fine. That's okay. That's race. But really, what does that mean when we talk about race mm-hmm. in reality? Right. We're not talking about it's like, oh, man, that person can deposit so much melanin in their skin. <laughs> can right? you imagine? That is really what we're we're using an arbitrary an arbitrary biological cue to try to say something much more penetrating about the differences 
between peoples. Okay. Right. And we've seen this play out over and over again in, in science and in culture, like phrenology, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the amount of, of pigment that I can deposit in my skin has a, as much bearing on who I am as a person as like, you know, the lumps and knobs on my head or, right. you know, the shape of my ear. Mm-hmm. And nobody's going to say, oh, man, you got a lumpy head. You must be a genius. <laughs> You know, therefore, you deserve so-and-so economic status or, you know, blah, right. blah, blah. Right. 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 So it all depends on the utility. Exactly what are you trying to say? So race is a biological concept in the sense that it's a gross description of how much pigment is deposited in someone's skin and, you know, how that's played out across very large swaths of human history and migration out of Africa. Right. So, sure. But – there's just there's not much to pull from, right? And if we're tra- if we're tra- if we're talking about trying to develop something meaningful, right, in terms of determining who we are as individuals and why we're different, there's not a lot of utility there. Ethnicity then becomes something much more useful, right? Because totally agree. It's um mm. you know it's it's much more penetrating in trying to understand the the patterns and processes that led to an individual being who they are, right? Mm-hmm. Both the biological history of their lineage, you know, including those patterns of, of migration, including those patterns of local adaptation that, you know, that shape things like, like color pigmentation, but also um, many other things, right? So things like, you know, cultural history, religious history, so on. And why that is important biologically, right? So obviously it has social in- implications, mm-hmm. but- totally, yeah. As I just said before, those social, you know, the, those aspects of society and and civilization also influence us biologically, Come right? So, love that you just said that. Yeah. So, the, you know, we like to think of like, well, is it nature or is it nurture? It's but like, it's, well, nurturing can influence yes, nature, right? Oh my right? Gosh. Both within the context of a right. single individual, but also over evolutionary histories, right? So, you know, for, you know, if we think about... Um, you know, the fact that we, like, I have cream in my coffee right now. And if we really think about me having cream in my coffee or drinking milk with my cereal, it's weird. <laughs> it is so weird. It's putting milk in water. But where'd it come from? Where yeah. You- yeah. So the thing is, the reason why it's weird is because as mammals, obviously all of us, you know, drink milk at some point in our lives, but we stop when we're not babies anymore. Yep. We yeah. We wean. Mm-hmm. All mammals wean. No mammal continues to drink milk into adulthood except for us. But on the cultural circumstance in which we say it is much easier to get food if we can take these, you know, bull-like animals and we can just have them around and we don't have to chase them. Okay, Ah. that's very useful for a lot of different reasons, especially if you're living in a seasonal environment. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, in a seasonal environment, now all of a sudden you have these large swaths of time where crops aren't growing, right? And which means that, you know, food is going to become scarce. Right. But if you have this other warm-blooded mammal that can generate its own body heat and it can survive through the winter and you can drink the stuff coming out of its teats, (laughs) right? Now all of a sudden you have something that's useful for you. Right. Right. And so that that's a that can I mean that is very literally a cultural thing, right? It's like this is what we're gonna do to make a living, right? This is how we're gonna eke out our existence. But in con but as a consequence, our biology shifted, right? Now there are, you know, we have specific genes, right? Lactate dehydrogenase, which breaks down that milk, right? And the expression of those genes on most mammals typically ceases as we get older because we're no longer suckling. Right. But 
in this situation where individuals that are able to take in milk and process milk uh, and um, and do it in in a healthy fashion, right, so that they don't get sick or die, then they're all of a sudden now they can have more children than those people who are having a lot of different problems. Now we're talking about evolution by way of selection. Power. Right? They have more. They have more children. Those children have the same traits. They inherit the same versions of those genes, so on mm-hmm. and so forth. Right. So now we have the biological implications of a specific societal cultural thing. Right. Right. And we see that in ourselves all over uh, all over the place. Right. If we think about. Uh, Tibetans versus the Han Chinese, right? The ability to live at high altitude has very specific biological consequences, right? But there had to some, there had to be some cultural or social or social thing, right, that drove a population into this extreme environment in the first place. Mm-hmm. So you're. It sounds like. Tell me if I'm crazy. You, there's a biological effect to a lack of resources and vice versa. Yes. Interesting. So don't date lactose intolerant people. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I actually, uh, as a baby, was lactose intolerant. So, okay, this is this is insane. So, what does that mean then for for us living in the United States? And you look at the distribution of wealth, and you look Mm. at different as a resource. And you talked about urban environments Mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico and and how it shaped lizards. And like, Mm -hmm. what about? The quality of our air. What about the quality? Flint, Michigan. The quality of our yep, water, yep. and and the biological effects of of these, and and people that are living in poverty, and people that are li- living in lower income neighborhoods. Yeah. So again, we're talking about real biological implications, right? Certainly, right. So the bio, like the biological effects of of these things versus, you know, a biological reason for those things are two distinct. Those are two distinct things. Makes sense. Right? Yeah. You know, and but if we're talking, if we were going to focus on the biological effects, right, if, if we're thinking about, um, you know, resource acquisition, if we're thinking about exposure to contaminants, so on and so forth, we know that these have very real biological effects. Again, um, if we're thinking about like the, the epigenome, you know, one, a, a professor uh, here at UCLA, um, Steve Horvath, has actually been studying what's called the, the molecular clock, right? This, um, you know, the, the pattern of aging, right, as it, as it plays out in our cells. One of the things that we know is that when you are comparing molecular aging to chronological aging in stressful conditions, molecular, that molecular clock speeds up. Mm. Right? And mm-hmm. that can have very severe consequences um, biologically. Again, we're still trying to understand exactly what those consequences are, mm-hmm. right? But in certain disease states, um, you know, if we're thinking about uh, cancer, if we're thinking about exposure to environmental contaminants, right. uh, if we're thinking about um, heat stress, all of these things change the patterns of methylation uh, in our cells, right? This, this, you know, it begins to fade, you know, the production of, of things up or down, and that has biological consequences, can I ask then, and I want to touch upon systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And so can you explain what that is? Because it's a very sort of, uh, I don't know, hot word right yeah. now, I should say. It gets thrown around a lot. And I don't know Buzzword. if a lot of, right. And and I don't know if a lot of people know exactly what it is. So if you don't mind just explaining that to us from an academic perspective, yeah. Fill us in and then maybe give us some specific examples and how that might relate to what you're talking about. Yeah. So um, 
when we're talking, so if if you don't mind, I'm, I'd like to st- take a step back and, and talk yeah. about just like systemic bias generally. Yeah. Speaking, yes, please. Right, because again, I you know I have this sort of dual hat in this conversation totally. as you know both a scientist, you know, and a Black American. Mm-hmm. Right, so you know there are all sorts of things at play here. But when we're thinking about systemic bias, right, be it, you know, if we're talking about systemic racism, if we're talking about systemic sexism, uh, systemic ableism, uh, systemic, um, you know, uh, uh, gender or uh, sexuality bias, uh, we're talking about the the consequences of historical actions and mores and so on and so forth, right? And the thing is, you know, I think this gets to be a really sensitive subject for a lot of people because you say something like, uh, like white privilege, right? Right, and then all of a sudden it, it's you know people think it's a personal attack, right? right? Mm-hmm. And it's like you know it's like if I say oh you have white privilege, and he's like I worked hard, I worked hard to get what I have. Like mm-hmm. nobody you know and hurt anybody, you know. Whatever, yeah, it's I like it, know. you know slavery wasn't my idea. You know all these weird things like people start to say, right? But when we're talking about systemic racism or systemic uh, any sort of systemic bias it has nothing to like the existence of that system right has nothing to do with with well I won't say it has nothing to do but it it's not about the individuals right it's about the system in which those individuals live yeah um and you know so for me right I can speak so you know a little bit more comfortably um, about this as as a man because I'm on the other side of you know, of that fence, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, somebody's like, oh, you have male privilege. you damn right, I have male privilege. You know, and that is, you know, I can have the utmost respect, you know, for women. I can, uh, you know, be the most, you know, vocal advocate and ally for uh, for women, you know, and across all sorts of, you know, any uh, axis of equality, right? And I can be, you know, a staunch representative and warrior, and still have male privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And that's simply because I'm I'm still a man, right? That is still how I move through that environment. The yeah. The yep, same yep, thing yep. as a cis individual, right? I there's some stuff that I don't have to worry about, right? That I don't even think about, right? Because it's not something that that hinders me in any way, right? And the very fact that the system does hinder some people. Mm-hmm. Right. That in itself. Right. That is systemic bias. Right. It's a system, uh, an entire socioeconomic system that has real life consequences for individuals. Right. So, you know, so again, like, you know, for me, like, you know, I'll work till like 3 a.m. and walk home at night. Right. I'm working hard. Right. And uh, I can be very confident. Like I work hard. The things that I have gotten, you know, are, you know, are in large part because of like my own individual ethic and drive and motivation. Your decision. Exactly. Yeah. That doesn't change the fact that a female colleague is going to be a much harder decision for her to try to work till 3 a.m. if she knows that she has to walk home at night. I was just going to say, right. I won't be walking home at 3 a.m. by myself. That's got nothing to do yep. with me as an individual. Right. But it's still a way in which I am privileged. Mm-hmm. Right. Privileged not to have to worry about that. Privileged to focus on my work until 3 a.m. And that privilege... Right. The product of, you know, that that hard work and so on gives me something. But the that privilege is something that's robbed from another individual and strips them from the mental space, the psychological space, the emotional space to do the exact same thing. 
Right? And really, so when we're talking about getting systemic equality, we're talking about essentially removing those things, right? giving everyone equal freedom to move in their world, being uninhibited mm-hmm. by the weird abstract constraints that people put on, on others. Abstract being unwritten. That's the thing. I feel like it's it's it just exists. It's like you can't pinpoint it or take it out of a document or take it off of a line of something. It's like it's just it's just like it's there. Yeah. Even if you I mean, look at and I don't know if this example relates, but look at the the new laws. We're like, oh, let's put cameras on police officers. Really weird how some of those cameras get turned off and mm-hmm. then no one gets prosecuted mm-hmm. for that. Um, so I just you know, it's like we can we can make laws, we can make policies, but it comes down to us as individuals changing and like, you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I agree. And the the thing is, so I think is one thing talking about this in in an ideological sense, right? Right. Like, these are the way things should be. These, you know, what I think really where we come into to conflict, where a lot of conflict comes, is in how do you implement change right so here's the thing so just like taking a step away and like looking at this as a scientist right what is the problem right the problem is is inequality mm-hmm. right across any number of axes you can put that on race gender age um, exactly yeah you know uh, ab- you know uh, abled abledness right in oh, in yeah. our contemporary society right. uh, any axis and so if there is inequality right and the goal is equality, right, then logically speaking, you're talking about balancing, mm-hmm. right? You do, if, you know, you consider there's like some, you know, some set amount of resources, right? There's a, a set system and it's disproportionately distributed within that system. You want it to be proportionally distributed in that system. But what that means is that those privileges that are in place have to be removed, which means you know, some of the opportunities that some individuals had because of that privilege, right, are now being lessened because it's it's equaling out. But what that means in practice is, well, why are you taking things away from me, mm-hmm. right? How is this fair if things are being taken away from me and given to somebody else? Right? And so it's it's this, the conflict between that, that individual perspective, right, and that systems level perspective that leads to a lot of these arguments. And, and maybe there's value in, in just focusing on what it takes to provide certain resources to different communities so that it's up to them if they're going to use it or if they want to use it and, you know, whatever, or versus, like, deciding to give more to someone versus another. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. sometimes people and kids that grow up with that have less access to stuff like, you know, I can't go on a field trip to D.C. if I'm growing up on you know, in a poorer community of LA, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like if you just give the chance, see if people will use the chance or not use it. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. And I mean, so even, I like, know. you know, can it, so it does make sense. Right. And, but even, even in that sense, like you have to still consider, you know, the, why things are the way they are. Right. So if you brought this, this school issue, yeah. right. It's like, okay, so you have, you know, the quote unquote poor inner city schools and quote yeah. unquote, you know, these like affluent, you know, private schools, mm-hmm. so on and so forth, or even amongst public schools, right? Yeah, I mean, after public schools, mm-hmm. right? And well, why is that so? Like, why is this? You know, like, you know, what is the variation that we're that we're seeing? Well, it's because of of property taxes, exactly. Right, property taxes are the things that that you know fund 
uh, fund schools. Right. Oh, I just read about this. It's true. And so, That's I mean, right. th- and, and where does that go back to? Who who couldn't own property yes. for yep for for so long and, and accumulated wealth? Yeah. And then even when yep. they they could own property, there were very specific. I mean, called redlining. Right. There's very mm-hmm. specific rules about. Um, you know about what loans got given to what people to right. live in in what areas, right? and okay, so you know an individual moves into this affluent, you know, an affluent neighborhood. And they want their children to go to a good school. You should. That is your prerogative. That is your your job as a parent to give your children, you know, the most that you can give them in order for them to set themselves up to be right. successful. Right. Nobody's going to argue against that. Right. But that's fundamentally different from the reason why there's so much, why other people can't do right. that. Right. 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 And so when people, but, you know, selfishly, like when people are like, well, I can do this, so I'm I'm good. Hey, all the best to everyone else. I'm doing my thing. Right. So then when you're talking about, it's like, okay, well, these other, other people need to be able to do this too. Mm-hmm. Out of their control. They right? can't like, not hey, do it because they don't want to. I worked hard for what I have. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. Right. Yeah. And so again, it's this this individual level perspective and the systemic level perspective that causes a lot of these a lot of the, these arguments that that we see when it comes to specifically specifically when it comes to aspects of white privilege and systemic racism. Totally. Yeah. But also, like you, like do, like we are like as dudes, like oh my god, guys are ridiculous too, right? In terms of <laughs> our, you know, it's like you know when we talk about male privilege right? yeah. like, well I'm nice right that's always the argument for some reason is like how you. nice someone is <laughs> so you can be nice and racist and you can be yeah. nice and sexist like those things don't you know right. like how nice you are has no bearing on on the ultimate consequences of your actions and how you move in a system that has these inherent and very old biases right 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 I have a question and Allie and I talked about this before but um, so I also I also teach fourth grade, mm-hmm. or I guess this year fifth grade. I forget what I teach. <laughs> what I'm sorry, uh, so, I'm exhausted all the time. Uh, somebody's kids. So, right, I do comedy and then I teach still, and so it's this really interesting thing where I think about spaces and I think about what is culturally the dominant culture for spaces, mm-hmm. right? And like, okay, kids, come in quietly. Right. So, oh, let's line up in a in a nice straight line, mm-hmm. and then it's like we have this um, new. I don't know if it's new, but I don't think it was around when I was growing up. It's like culturally responsive classrooms, mm. and it's supposed to be a flexible, fluid classroom, and it's supposed to be, um, you know, representative of the students that are in your classroom. Okay. And so, not everything has to be like, like quiet or or like or we're oh we don't always have to be raising our hand like there's gonna be times when we're like shouting out or times when you know it just it's a very flexible fluid environment and so i think about that and i think about like where does that come from right Hmm. and like the idea of lining up be quiet authority power versus Mm -hmm. who doesn't have power where did schooling come from creating factory workers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so and then i think about like the college and university spaces and like who has access to those and or if you go on a job interview what are you supposed to act like and what mm-hmm. is that that's dominant culture yeah. right mm-hmm. um and so i i wonder it's hard because it's like you a lot of times we talk about getting in and shaking up the system right and then in order to get into the system you need to sort of like play along mm-hmm. it's this weird i don't know do you i mean i know you have probably a personal like perspective on this and i'd love to hear what you think 
Yeah, so it is hard when, you know, you're talking about like breaking up a system. Yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody goes into a Fortune 500 company into their interviews like, I'm about to burn this down. <laughs> Like, all the things that you hold dear, I'm going to destroy them from the inside. Right? No, like, nobody gets you. Security! Gets yeah. Yes, exactly. like that, that gets you gets you a boot to the door really, really quickly. Real quick. You need to be at the table in order to, to make change, though. And it's yes. like getting right. to the table is so hard. The approach is yeah. the approach. And, but again, right? I mean, it's it's again this it's a it's a byproduct of the system, right? It's a, the history. I mean, quite frankly, like we're talking about, you know, as our our country, right? We're talking about a system that was literally built on the ideas and foundations of white men in a time and period where white men were, you know, ideologically, philosophically at the top mm-hmm. of you know, the All social teams. hierarchy, right? <laughs> and biological hierarchy. Right? Yeah. Everyone is like, oh, like, you know, and that goes back like manifest destiny and yes. all you know, oh, all totally. this stuff. Like, yep. you know, if we go back even further, the crusades, right? All of this stuff, all of mm-hmm. like these ideas, you know, are steeped in large part in this idea of, you know, like masculinity and this this odd construct of of race and how the two intersect with um with culture, right? He's like, oh you know, these people are different from us. Really, what we want is to be able to get their resources. Therefore, you know, okay, as king, it's like God has endowed me with with certain powers. I'm backed by the church, you know, and you know the head of the church who's you know rocking his his gold and 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 robes. Yep. And we're about to go, you know, drop set on you know these other peoples yeah right that are different from us that have different resources right but they're different but we need their resources because they're different right we have to make them more like us and you know and then that is essentially what leads to okay well those differences are bad why are they bad and then you know these ideas of racism and so on and so forth and pretty much everything else gets justified within that context fast forward you know you have the formation of of the United States, right, that, you know, endows people with these inalienable rights. But what does people mean at, in that in that context? Right. It wasn't all people. Right. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't not all people. Close. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't you if you were not a, a white man, essentially. It was a right? new people. Yeah. It's a new version of people, right. sounds like. But our ideas yeah. and our, you know, our social, you know, our social understanding of who we are and how we wish we should interact, it has been progressing, arguably, I would hope so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so then why is this the foundation, right, that was set, you know, at a specific time point in which, you know, those cultures, the, you know, cultural, philosophical understanding of who we are as a species, it was fundamentally different when the system was set in place. Right. We've progressed, but then we've put in all of these, you know, these ways in order to keep from the system in which we exist to uh, from from progressing right? and it, it's just a fundamental disconnect like who like nobody's trying to use anything else from that time mm-hmm. right? right like you know Tools, like, yeah so we're talking about the right to bear arms cool use the arms that Ugh. were that they wrote about that they like were this. thinking about <sighs> right. in, during that time right you're trying to make everything else be that way then cool yeah. totally. like, where, get where, yourself as many muskets as you want <laughs> takes you 10 minutes to load and yeah. like bear, where, oh. wear a weird wig and wear clogs I don't know right. figure yeah. it out Paint your face white with little. Didn't they have little pink round cheeks? I don't know. Oh yeah, they wore makeup. <laughs> Weird <and those> makeup, <laughs> long wigs that were so masculine. So stupid. So interesting. Yeah. So no. yeah, you think about yeah. 
But it's also like they, when you talk about I don't resources, know if I actually answer your question, by the way. Well, I think you gave me a, a historical perspective on yeah. why those spaces exist today yeah. and how they are. Like where they came from. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess ultimately, you know, what, what I was getting at, a really long way, uh, long-winded way of, of, of getting at, you know, Essentially, we've had a culture that's been dominated by a subset for a very long period of time, right? And that subset has built a system in which they can best exist. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, right? Anybody in power would do that. Mm -hmm. But now with our current understanding of the need for equality, right, the, the need for everyone's voice to be heard, Right. And the benefit that we all get from those voices being heard now, all of a sudden, we have to step away from just that small subset of cultural ways of being religious ways of being uh, and try to understand mm -hmm. things that, you know, if you're in the, you know, the the quote unquote majority. Right. Maybe you have not been exposed to. Right. Maybe it's completely new to you. Ignorance. You know, so, you know, and that is ignorance. But, you know, when I say ignorance, like a lot of people take take offense. Right. right? But right. ignorance but is the default state of the human mind. It's, it's not, not knowing. knowing. Yeah. Know, right. right? Exactly. It's the lack of knowledge. Right. And now we're in a in a place where we're getting much more knowledge from from so many different places. And much quicker than we were, we've ever been able to get it before. All right. So now it's not so much. It's like, OK, you're ignorant. Well, learn. See, that's right? what we're skipping. And you have the to be open. Part. Yeah, yeah, you have to be open to to receiving. Right. Allie was saying, "Oh, yeah." When I was telling people I'm doing a podcast on race and ethnicity and, and identity, people were like, "You shouldn't do that. Like, you're you're a white chick. What are you gonna? That's I don't know. Why would you? Why are do you doing that? that? It's like, well, no. We need to learn and we need to know, and so does everybody else. Yeah. So and it's why a not? neutral approach. Right. Yeah. We're speaking with people that are, have all different types of backgrounds and that are that are that are informing us and yeah. that's and that's what we need to do we need to seek to know more and that because that's the thing it's like that person that tells me not to do it is assuming all the negative without thinking about diving into it more they're just assuming it's one way or or not do you know what i mean like yeah. it's like why not dive in why not say what you're feeling and what you're thinking because not everyone even tries to learn. Yeah. They don't care. It's true. I mean, and even that process is complicated, yeah. right? I mean, right. because, you know, for, you know, again, like for me as an individual, it's like sometimes I don't feel like being people's teacher when it comes to, you know, to, to you know, to issues of, of race. And I was just like, look, I'm tired. This is something I have to deal with every day in my life regardless. I have no option, you know, and, right. you know, so it's not something I always want to talk about, you know, but. That doesn't make it any less important. Right? right. Yeah. And there always has to be room for conversation, like stepping into a space and being able to stumble through a complex idea. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this is not, you know, this is not simple arithmetic that we're talking about. These are like really complex social, biological, economic, right. psychological things. Mm -hmm. And your evolutionary biology background is just like such a fascinating lens to even Eye -opening. see. Like I had no clue on how environment affects our our genetic uh makeup i mean that's fascinating and then and then i think for me it's like well of course we need to have all of these policies that help our environment and 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 help healthcare and make make give you know you know it's it's, well, it's issues a, of equity equity and it's it's also it's just society like how functioning do we want to be as a society mm -hmm. the longer you separate yourself from others and you know continue to 
or that lack of understanding of where someone else is coming from, you're not going to progress. I don't think like you need to know where someone else is coming from, understand their why. We all have a why, right? Like, why do we do what we do? Why are we here? And, you know, there's this, I think, which comes back to being human. I think there's this competitive element where it's like, once you have it all, why are you going to let go? Yeah. But if we think about sharing and collaborating, which this new entrepreneurial generation is doing more, I think it could take us further. And and that that idea, I mean, it's a beautiful idea and it's penetrating across so many things, right? Mm-hmm. Even like quant and even quantitatively like when it comes to biology. Because essentially yeah. what you're talking about is is diversity. Like not, you know, not like racial diversity or ethnic diversity mm-hmm. specifically, but diversity. And it's one of the things that we know is that, you know, diversity leads to innovation, right? And that's at a fundamental biological level, right? Under, you know, if you have a lot of genetic diversity in a population, natural selection can act more efficiently Mm -hmm. and it can drive populations uh, quickly and more efficiently down specific adaptive trajectories. Uh, You know, if we're, and then if we're talking about socially, you know, diversity, right? The crossroads of ideas, these are the, these, this is where innovation is it will be generated now, right? There's mm-hmm. there was there's only one invention of the wheel. We got that, right? <laughs> like that that thing is here, right? <laughs> Somebody did the fire thing. That's cool. We got that now. <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Yeah, but now when we're talking about technological innovation, um, trying to understand how we progress as a modern society, right? That diversity, different ideas coming from different people with different perspectives, right? Those are the things that are going to allow us as a civilization and as a species to thrive. I mean, you can even think about just economically, right? Diverse. If somebody was like, I have $3 million, I'm going to put it all into Nike stock, right? <laughs> Nike is doing really well. It's the best shoe right now. You know, economically speaking, I'm putting it all in there. Yeah. That is not a great decision. It's like, <laughs> right. yes, okay, it's doing well. Not balanced. Yeah. Though. There's no... Exactly, right? But... If you spread those funds out, right, mm-hmm. across a diverse small business, large business, different, you know, products being produced, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. now all of a sudden that portfolio is stronger, right? You have a you know a stronger economic basis, it becomes more, you know, resilient to to market fluctuations, so on and so forth, right? And we can say say the same thing biologically and culturally. Right. Yeah. So moving towards a system where we can optimize the diversity that we have, right, and be able to efficiently pull from that diversity and 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 actively create those crossroads, right? I mean, those are the things that that will allow us to um, to flourish as as a species and come up with solutions for all the different problems that we're now being faced at a remarkable rate. Yeah, I have a question for yeah. you. How do you feel about singularity as an evolutionary biologist? Oh, I think I was reading my mind. Was it, um, what, can you define for me what you mean by singularity? Me wearing this Apple Watch right now, and there are th- like I think his name is Ray Kurzweil. He um, he's like a futurist, and so mm. he tries to see where humans are heading in the future, and he mm. thinks that we're going to eventually implant computer chips mm. in, into uh, our bodies. I don't think he's wrong. <laughs> I'm already I'm wearing like, this, and I never thought I would. Yeah. If you asked me that five years ago when those Google glasses came out, I was like, no way. Yeah. Now I'm like, no, hold on. Doing voice texting like an idiot on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I think that we are very quickly moving down that path, uh, right? When we think about um, you know, things like brain-machine interfacing, um, you know, it's, 
you know, for a lot of different reasons, right? So we can think about it in terms of like prosthetics and, um, yeah, and and things like that, but also just in terms of like making you know our connections to the world around us, right? The abstract world around us, as in like the social, the socio, yeah. you know, economic world around us, like making those connections more seamless. It's something that you know we are becoming increasingly obsessed with. Like I can't tell you, you know, how many times I need to bob and weave around a sidewalk because absolutely nobody is looking at where they're going. Everybody's face is smashed into their their Horrible. smartphone. It's it's fascinating. What will that even mean for our spines in the future? Oh, right? I don't, I don't kids are having know. problems with their eyes because their the whole life is on a, s- a screen. Well, they're all in baby yoga, so maybe it. Bounce. <laughs> I don't know. We're yeah. in LA. But but again, so that's a that's yeah. a thing. Like when we're talking about the release of ancestral selection pressures, right? Like if we had to hunt stuff down or run away from very large apex predators, having good eyesight is probably a a, a, a good thing to have, right? But you know, if you can you know live in an air conditioned building and play PlayStation for seven hours a day, right? Then Shit. I mean, there's no biological consequence. Uh, you know, to to those actions, right? You can still theoretically, you know, survive and reproduce. So, you know, that those selection mm. pressures, right, are are no longer a thing. So, I'm again, there's you know, just sort of bringing it back full circle. I'm um, just thinking, what about brain stimulation, though? Because I think video games have there's a couple layers with those, <clears throat> but you you have the idea that this kid is literally not moving for mm-hmm. hours doing something but what he's or she is doing is requiring a lot of focus and concentration mm-hmm. and memorization and strategy mm-hmm. like doing a bunch of math problems like they say do math problems as long as you can in life because it keeps your brain going yeah mm-hmm. like am i is it helping them where they have to strategize and watch something and they're learning in an activity but i have to balance it because i don't want them to not be physical yeah so um, you know, so video games certainly give you that, right? So we're right. talking about basically like the idea of neuroplasticity, right? Mm. You know, this, you know, this ability of our brain to, you know, especially early in life, mostly early in life, um, to to form new connections, yeah, right? to to make new networks um, that are specifically, you know, there in order to like think about certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're still, again, we're still in the process of really trying to understand and utilize um, this idea of brain plasticity, right? The, I mean, the the human brain is still, you know, it's one of the, you know, the forefronts is like still, you know, one of the, um, you know, I'd say the, uh, what is the, um, one of the last frontiers mm-hmm. of, uh, of modern biology, right? I mean, oh. we think about the connectome, right? So, you know, we think about the sequencing of the genome, right, mm-hmm. which is like, the entirety of the genes that that you know make up our our genetic blueprint. We think about the transcriptome, right? How each of those genes is being expressed and how those ex- those patterns of expression interact with each other. And then you know if we're thinking about omics, right? In this sense, right? genomics, transcriptomics. Then you have connectomics, right? What? Which is the you know the complete um, you know the complete pattern of connectivity of all the neurons in our brain. Right? And you're talking about in terms of like the possible number of connections, I mean, you you're talking about like you know more possible connections than there are in like stars in, in the galaxy. Day. It's like in a day too. Yeah, the amount of stuff. Now, does our consciousness lie in the prefrontal 
cortex. Is that right? Is that mm. what separates us from most other animals? So now we're moving out of my realm I'm of sorry. specialty. Okay. Yeah. Speaking um, of how many things we're making, I'm yeah. connecting. Can you tell I was also yeah. diagnosed with ADHD as a child? Okay, great. Uh, doesn't help in Adult an interview. onset, fully guilty. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, yeah, because I, I, I've read a little bit. There's a book called The Female Brain, which mm. I thought was really fascinating. Okay. Um, and I know like our podcast, our podcast is called Primitively Speaking, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at it through, okay, where did we come from and how are we evolving and how does that affect, affect? <laughs> guys, I'm sorry, I'm flubbing. Um, how does that affect or affect, uh, I don't know which one we use, even though I'm a teacher, um, you know, how we operate in society today. And so I know consciousness, we're the only animal i think to have it dolphins i think there's like a spectrum dolphins so, are smarter than yeah, us, so I think. Here, here's the thing right when we're talking about you know when we're talking about consciousness is that it's a um it is already inherently a biased question right because we are we are automatically putting ourselves at you know it's like we are the best at being us oh, like okay high, like superior species yes. situation yeah and okay. uh so I take it back <laughs> no no so, i do view my cat as shame an equal on you <laughs> Um, no, so, you know, but when we're thinking about, about conscious, right, there's this saying, right, you know, if you, you know, judge a fish on its ability to fly, you judge a bird oh, on yes. its ability to swim, yeah. unless it's a penguin, by the way, penguin's uh, actually pretty good at swimming. That's true. But besides that, okay. right, then, shit too. yeah, they are adorable. <laughs> um, you know, but, you know, so the idea of like, you know, this understanding of, of consciousness, right, when we think about like self-awareness and if we think about abstraction, Right. These are things that, you know, we actually they're not unique to us. Um, you know, these are things that, you know, if we think about, for instance, you know, you know, artistry. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I mean, this is probably something, you know, if you ask somebody, like, how are we different? It's like, oh, art. Right. right? We can create something that's beautiful and enjoy it. It's like, well, that's you know, we're not the only ones. Right. right. I mean, there are, um, you know, for instance, species of, of pufferfish in Japan that. You know that make these extremely elaborate circles that are used as like you know courting arenas essentially, right? And they have the very complex patterns that change um, uh, between individuals. Whoa. And you know Whoa. different individuals have different proclivities, right? Some prefer you know their uh, their circle to look this way. Some prefer their circle to look that way. If you uh, things like uh, bowerbirds, right, which they build these like really complex structures. Some prefer greens. Some prefer blues. Some prefer uh, browns. You know, uh, some prefer um, you know things that are shiny. Uh, something. Uh, some prefer flowers, right, in order to make their um, mm-hmm. you know these these things that will go on display, right, for females to then come in and. Um, you know, and to analyze in order to choose a mate. But then the flip side means that they also have to have appreciation of art, right? Yeah. If you're going to discern, right? Yeah. If, you know, if it's not like, oh, how much, yeah, if it's not a direct, you know, an absolutely direct, you know, measure of like, how fast can you run, right? right? And like, therefore, how, you know, and then making a judgment of how fast, you know, my children could potentially mm-hmm, run, mm-hmm. you know, that means that, like not only does that, does the male prefer to build it that way, but a female thinks that's sexy for some reason over something else, right? Which means that she has she has like some artistic preference. Hmm. So biologically, as a human, how do I 
get this mating power? <laughs> How can I evolve yeah. the same yeah. way? Just give all the men paintbrushes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. can I just get a, a, a paint line me? to pick from, yeah. please? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone sing for me, and I'll decide. Yes, but wear your red. When yeah. you... <laughs> that's awesome. That's so fascinating. I had no clue. Wow. I mean, that's just such a different level. Like We have our ways of processing, and we're like so ingrained in these details, but like those are such I mean, those details are just as relevant, but like so different. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like they have a whole nother hierarchy of things, so yes. to speak. It's just crazy. Right. I was just thinking like back, like, because I'm thinking, okay, what is it for humans then? Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel like <laughs> as a woman, you're always told like, I don't know, um, you know, honey, you can you can love a rich man as much as you can love a poor man. Why not love the rich man? Make life a little easier. You know, and it's like, we're, okay, so I feel like a lot of women judge men, right? You talk to your girlfriends. Oh, yeah. Oh, what does he do for a living? Mm. Oh, oh, good, good, good. He's not an artist. Oh, thank God. Mm. It's the yeah, opposite of the pufferfish. Right? The yeah. opposite of the pufferfish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's a boring accountant. Nail him. Nail him down. Yeah. Trap him. Yeah. Oh, he's a reverse pufferfish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We, yeah, like, I, I'm looking for my Bowerbird. Yeah, ex- exactly. Like this as an experiment, see yeah. what would happen. I want an but, urban lizard. Yeah, no, but yeah, that's yeah. with those long limbs for yeah. climbing on buildings. <laughs> Where's my Spider Man? Yeah. If you can't scale a building, don't 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 hit me in the DMs. <laughs> as slide into my DMs, as they say. I'm glad I'm married and passed on all of that. I can't handle it. I can barely handle Rub it in. I don't know. It's it's not good on either side. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Either side is a bad, I don't know, whatever. Um, but yeah. You mentioned Spider-Man. We talk oh, a little bit yes, about your podcast? Mm, and yeah. then how it relates to what you rap? Do. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so the podcast. Um, yeah, so, man, I think we're we are probably... Man, I guess it's almost a year and a half now. That's crazy how quick time, time flies. flies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I started this uh, podcast with a good friend of mine, uh, Arian Darby, the Biology of Superheroes podcast, um, which has been so just brilliant. so much fun. I can't even, oh God, I can't even tell you how fun it's been. Um, yeah, just being able to interact with people and like teach science like through this lens, right? communicating about all the weird stuff that happens in the natural world. And, you know, how science and science fiction sort of merge, right, in order to spark the imagination in all sorts of ways. So that, it's been a lot of fun. And actually, so the the podcast, um, the idea started when I was in graduate school. Okay. Um, and I was, like, writing my dissertation. And I I was just, I was burned out. You know, I was like, look, I love science, but this, oh, good Lord. Like, like okay. It's a, this is too much right <laughs> yeah. now. And I remember... Um, so when I was in, in Cambridge, I was like walking around Harvard Square one night and I, um, you know, I passed by this comic book store and I had never bought a comic book in my entire life. I was like in my mid 20s. <laughs> and uh, in the in the window, there was a comic book, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. Whoa. Exactly. That's what I said. Literally out loud. I was like, <laughs> what? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they were Need both to read that. Yeah. Okay. You know, and it were like they were in a in a boxing ring with boxing gloves on. I was like, okay, Superman fights Muhammad Ali. I gotta see who wins. <laughs> oh my yeah. All right. So that was the first comic book I ever bought. And it was like this like guilty pleasure reading. You know, yep. it's like, you know, at night, like right before I go to sleep, I turn on, you know, like laying in bed and I turn on my light and I'm like, you know, looking through the pictures and the bands mm-hmm. and the pals and all this stuff. And it was it was just fun, right? It was something that was, you know, that was light. You know, it was a 
you know, just like so different from reading like dense scientific text, right, in order to try yeah, to right. put together my thesis. But then, you know, so I went back, you know, I got a couple other comic books. It just became this this guilty pleasure. And then I realized like, I started having these really weird dreams, like really, really <laughs> weird dreams. Um, of just like, you know, biological concepts that I had read about in the, in the comic book characters I was reading about or like other aspects of science fiction. And they were just fusing in all these weird ways. And you got to the point where it's like, I need to do something with this. Um, yeah, I need an outlet. connecting to me in another way. Exactly. <laughs> and I, so I ended up teaching, um, this, this really short course at Harvard. It was like two weeks and like six classes, I think. And it was like me and this small group of like six undergraduates. And, you know, we just talked about, um, you know, things like flash and super speed and metabolism. Uh, we talked about like size and scaling and, you know, what that means for like Ant-Man or Giant-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about zombies, like all these different things, like the biology of yeah. the undead, right? All the things <laughs> that... I'm so uh, zombie culture. My students yeah. love uh, this. <laughs> I know where this is going. Yeah. yeah. Can my students listen to this? Oh, yeah. Is it appropriate? Okay. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. So, then, so then you guys are all talking about this. Yeah, and... You know, we had a lot of fun with it and like we dove deep. And then at the end of the, they were like, this is all the stuff that that we learned in 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 biology class, just different. Yeah. Mm. And it was just a really interesting way. It was a what we call a thought experiment. Right. So there's like at, like you use science fiction as an abstract way to understand concrete ideas. And this has a really long history in, in science, right? Mm-hmm. So we think about Schrodinger's cat, right? This oh, yeah. Trying to understand quantum superposition, mm-hmm. right? this really complex um, idea in physics. And, but in order to explain that, it's like, okay, you take, you got a cat in a box with some poison. That poison is going to break open at some point, but you don't know when that point is, right? So when you close that system, at some point, as you're observing it, you can think of the cat as both alive and dead simultaneously Whoa. until you actually observe it, right? And then all of a sudden, it's one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. And this is this, you know, it's an abstract way of thinking about this this idea so in quantum physics. Intense, yeah. yeah. And we use it in biology, all right? So, uh, for instance, in evolution, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, he proposed this, uh, this question in, uh, in the late 80s, right? If you replay the tape of evolution, do you get the same result mm. over and over again, right? Obviously, we don't have time machines. We can't replay the tape of evolution in that sense. But... Mm. That the thought experiment, what the Germans call a Gedanken experiment, uh, mm-hmm. you can thank Schrodinger for a Gedanken experiment. <laughs> I love that name. Um, That's yeah, great. me too. As I, I always, I will always take an opportunity to say Gedanken experiment. <laughs> I was going to call it Gedanken dunk. Yeah, Gedanken experiment. Gedanken. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, but that you know, it's an abstract idea. But then it led to you know this entire subfield of evolutionary biology trying to ask questions about repeatability and determinism and contingency yeah. and how those things influence the world that that we uh, that we see around us so essentially what we're doing is we're taking science fiction we're taking comic books and aliens and zombies and robots and AI, and we're using them as thought experiments to explore concrete, in-depth aspects of science. Uh, and it's been it's just it's been a lot of fun. Sounds like a language tool, which is a fundamental building block of development. Right? Yeah, you're totally yeah. creating a new language in t- like a new science language. You're relating it to, as you said, something contemporary. Like you're doing more contemporary research yourself, right? Yes. Yeah. 
it's like the perfect conjoining of all your worlds. Yeah. Yeah, like, it really is. Brilliant. Yeah. And it's been a lot of fun. And I should say uh, my very, so this is my first year as an assistant professor at UCLA. Mm -hmm. um, my first year as a professor, generally speaking. And the very first course they let me teach was the biology of superheroes. Oh, that's amazing. Because it, it's so brilliant. It's it like everything awesome. at once. It's so good. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. What's the name of your podcast and where can we listen to it? The Biology of Superheroes podcast. Um, and you can uh, get us on iTunes, pretty much anywhere. Um, you know, Spotify. You, mm -hmm. Yeah, Spotify. Anywhere you get your um, you uh, you get your podcasts. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter at SuperBioPodcast. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at S. Campbell Staten. Amazing. Copy that. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us. Yeah, this that has been a, a true pleasure. Treat. A lot of fun. Same. This yeah. has been wonderful. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. Love it. Thank you guys again for listening, and please tune in to our other episodes on Spotify, Stitcher, and iTunes. Catch up, take all the time you want, and tune in next time for an entire discussion about food and culture. See you then. Bye. <laughs> Primitively Speaking podcast can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And we are also on Instagram at Primitively Speaking Podcast. Please, by all means, send us any ideas you have, topics you're curious about. We will definitely consider discussing them. Y'all better be tuning in. Catch us next week. Thanks. Thanks.